0: Chapter 6 Escaping Fate Bergen-Belsen was a different ball game When we arrived there in October 1944 we lived in tents The weather was still very nice there were no gas chambers and the food was better than in Auschwitz That's not saying much but it was better For breakfast, we got something that looked like cream of wheat with milk, and it tasted sweet. It was so unexpected, and we thought that we were really in a good camp. For a short while, there was a great improvement in our living conditions. Of course, we were comparing everything to the hell of Auschwitz. Then the rainy season came, and our tents leaked— The most vivid and bad memories I have of Bergen-Belsen are of soaking wet blankets. The three of us would put our blankets together and huddle under them to warm each other up. But the blankets never had a chance to dry out, and we were constantly covered in damp or wet blankets. My hip started acting up again. As the rainy season continued, life in the camp became dismal. Again, we were idle. No work, nothing to do. Finally, we were transferred to wooden barracks, but food became more and more scarce. I remember one form of punishment. If they found a piece of straw, or something like that on the floor, you didn't get your bread ration. The guards always withdrew food from us as a punishment. Hunger and illness set in, and we became aware that this was not as good a place as it had been when we first arrived. But there was no escape. I remember the big celebration on New Year's Eve, the end of 1944. Good riddance, we thought. To celebrate, we received a little extra red cabbage. I don't know why silly things like this stand out in my mind. They are not of any consequence. Things were getting worse, and there was no hope for a better New Year. Hunger and a full-blown typhus epidemic were all that were on the horizon. Early in January 1945, there was a big assembly. Prisoners from different sections of the camp were gathered together. I can still picture the man who spoke to us. He was dressed in civilian clothing, in a beige trench coat and a brown fedora, like one of my brothers used to wear, not in an SS uniform, which was a welcome and reassuring change. It was a cloudy day, and it looked like it was going to rain. The man spoke in German in a nice, calm tone. He explained that he needed 500 strong, young women to work in his factory, an aeroplane parts factory called Junkers. The three of us, my camp sisters and I, saw that the conditions in the camp were worsening, and we volunteered to go with him. We decided to present ourselves as three sisters, hoping that would allow us to stay together. I took on their surname and registered myself as Judith Feig, along with Shari Feig and Edith Feig, and we were accepted. All those who volunteered were then assembled and transported by cattle cars to a slave labor camp in the industrial district of Germany near Leipzig to a town called Aschersleben. Now we were in the heart of the German war industry in an area full of ammunition factories. While we had experienced acute hunger and the brutality of some of the female overseers in Bergen-Belsen, we had escaped the worst. After the war ended, we learned that the typhus epidemic that swept the camp after we left killed many, including the well-known Anne Frank and her sister Margot, and the corpses were piled high, left unburied. The sick were abandoned, and untreated, and Bergen Belsen turned into a camp of death. We had escaped that fate by taking a chance on volunteering to work in a place we knew nothing about. This was the first time we had the opportunity to take our fate into our own hands, and it worked out well. As well as could be expected while imprisoned under the brutal Nazi regime. It was January 12, 1945, when we entered the Aschersleben slave labor camp, a subcamp of Buchenwald. Unbelievably, we had decent barracks. Decent, of course, compared to Auschwitz Birkenau's inhuman conditions. We had individual bunk beds with straw mattresses that were covered in white sheets. Although, annoyingly, not without some bedbugs here and there. We even had hot shower facilities at our disposal, and we showered every day. Being able to keep clean was of the utmost importance. We had to be clean in order to maintain morale within the factory. After all... We were now introduced to civil society, so to speak. It was beyond our wildest dreams. Imagine the barracks were even heated with huge hot water pipes running right through them. It was hard to believe that we were there. Our barracks were only a short walk from the factory, which was a blessing as it was bitterly cold outside and we had only very thin coats to wear. The roll calls were dealt with quickly. There was never enough food and we were always hungry, but the food we had was of much better quality than we were used to. There were actual pieces of meat swimming in the soup at lunchtime, and the bread was tastier than it had been in other camps. Survival was possible here. We worked in the factory in rotating shifts alongside hundreds of other workers, some of them Polish and Ukrainian forced laborers who were paid and lived in the town of Aschersleben. I think the majority of them were non-German and many of them were POWs, prisoners of war. Some were Flemish volunteers from Belgium, sympathizers with Nazism. My foreman Argo, a French POW, warned me about them. He was kind. Occasionally we mingled with the others even though we Jewish women were watched all day long from the gallery above by female SS guards. We were prisoners while working in the privately owned factory. There was perfect coordination and cooperation between the SS and the private war industry in Germany. German industrialists who employed and exploited and in most cases sadistically mistreated their laborers were part and parcel of the Holocaust. There was also a group of Ukrainian women, over a hundred of them. An interesting scenario developed with the arrival of our group of 500 Jewish women. The Ukrainians had their own washroom because the German women who worked there would not share their washroom with them. And so there was a special washroom set up for the workers from the East, with a sign on the door that said, Ostarbeiter, Eastern workers. The Ukrainians did not like us, the Jews, and yet the 500 Jewish prisoners were assigned to use the same washroom as them. They didn't like this situation at all, but they had no choice. The SS made the rules. Eventually, we became friendly with these women and, in fact, began to engage in a sort of business with them. There were a number of Jewish women from Czechoslovakia who could converse with the Ukrainian women. The Czech women worked with large pieces of aluminum that they soldered together to create airplane parts. Pieces of scrap aluminum often got left on the floor. Some of these women were very smart and they secretly used these scrap pieces to make pots and pans. Since they had learned how to solder, they could make lids too. They exchanged these items with the Ukrainian women in the shared washroom. Pots and pans for potatoes, carrots, or whatever food was available. It was quite a business for those who worked in that area of the factory. Not me. I worked on riveting various kinds of large screws onto the end of pipes. I hoped to heaven that the place in which these pipes were placed would never be able to fly. The makers of the pots and pans shared their food with those of us who had nothing to sell. Unbelievably... I, a Hungarian Jewish girl, saw latkes made for the first time in my life in the barracks of a slave labor camp. In addition to pots and pans, the Czech women made graters by punching many holes into pieces of scrap metal. We all helped grate potatoes and formed them into patties minus eggs, of course but they still tucked together because of the starch from the potatoes. We put the patties on those huge round heating pipes, hot water flowing through them constantly to cook them. When they were ready, the other women yelled out, Who wants a latke? What is a latke? added Shari and I asked. And so I learned what a latke was in Asher and I liked it, even though I was told that the real one was much better with onion, salt, and egg, and fried in oil. <laughs> While at the Junkers factory, I had a touching experience with one of the young Russian children who also worked there as slaves for 12 hours a day. I surmised that these children had been captured along with their parents after the German army attacked the Soviet Union. One day, one of these children came close to me while I was working and quickly put something wrapped in paper in my hand. This was risky, as the Jewish prisoners were always being watched by the female SS guards. I immediately slipped the item into my pocket. Later, I unwrapped it to find a big chunk of hard sugar. It was an incredibly surprising act of generosity. Of course, I shared the sugar with Edit and Shari. I never saw that child again. I don't know what happened to him. That young boy had a heart. I still wonder what he thought of me that I was hungrier than he was. My foreman Argo saw that sometimes I was very disheartened. The POWs in the factory had access to news reports, but we Jews didn't know what was happening in the war. In a whisper, Argo would try to alleviate my dark mood by singing La Marseillaise, the French national anthem, and the war reports were good. He would smile at me and sing very quietly so that the SS overseers wouldn't hear him. He once also shared with me a piece of chocolate from a Red Cross package that he was supposed to get every month. The SS guards would divert most of them. The town of Aschersleben is situated close to Leipzig and not too far from Torgau, which is just west of the Elbe River, the place where the Allied forces eventually met. The Soviet army from the east, the American army from the west. We worked at Junkers until sometime in late March. At this point in the war, the area was subject to frequent air raids and often in the course of a day, we would have to stop work immediately and run into the bunker under the factory. We Jews under the watchful eyes of our SS guards. They would stand at the entrance of the bunker and count us when we entered and again when we left. Most of the time, there was the sound of airplanes overhead, but no bombardments, and we were rather annoyed at the Allied forces for inconveniencing us, but not attacking It was difficult for me to run because my so-called boots were falling apart. The canvas tops were separating from the wooden soles. I was very creative, though, and with flexible wires I obtained in the factory. I wove a kind of basket, like a muzzle on an aggressive dog, and put it over the front of my shoes. Old rags covered my bare feet. Somehow, it all held together while I did my work standing 12 hours a day. But running in them? That was difficult and painful. Eventually, that contraption gave me bloody toes and heels. I remember one occasion when we had to run into the bunker and one of the SS guards counting us noticed my feet and the muzzles I had fashioned. By then, they were breaking up a bit. She started to laugh and pointed to my feet, telling the others to look, and they all started to howl with laughter as they beheld my pain and misery. Finally, one day, the motivated attack came. Eddie, Chari, and I were in the barracks when it happened, having worked the night shift. The planes came so fast, that we didn't have time to run from the barracks to the bunkers. Our SS guards were frightened running around like headless chickens. They were American airplanes, and the bombing was magnificently accurate. We figured that on the previous passes, they were only photographing the terrain. We were so happy that none of us were hurt, we were giggling and laughing. The SS guards could not understand our joy. They said we were verrückte, mad. Obviously, we had different perspectives on this war and its outcome. We later saw that the whole area had been bombarded and learned that the Junkers factory was damaged and many buildings in Aschersleben were destroyed. The post-bombardment mess was tremendous. The air pressure from the exploding bombs had shattered the windows on the barracks and we had to be careful walking around with broken pieces of glass everywhere. After this major attack, we had nowhere to work and we wondered and feared what fate awaited us. We sensed the war was not over yet. After some days of waiting anxiously, A high-ranking SS-Oberscharführer, senior squad leader, came from Buchenwald with a few other officers to tell us that all of us Jewish women had to leave the camp as there was no longer any work for us. Actually, Aschersleben was one of the places where we could have survived to the very end if they had let us stay but the officer said that he had orders to take us all to the Buchenwald concentration camp to be executed. They won't let you survive just like that, he said. This was terrifying news. Then the officer added, but I won't do it. A sigh of relief. We were assigned two Wehrmacht guards with guns and told to gather our belongings and start marching out of the camp. Go, just march and go, just leave, the officer said. Where to? No answer. We figured this was speculation, of course, that he saw that the end of the war was near and didn't want to bother with the big job like getting almost 500 of us to Buchenwald we suspected that he would report to headquarters that by the time he arrived in Asher we had all escaped after the bombardment. In any case, he chose to let us go. So we left the camp with a very meager food supply and started marching on the road to no definite destination other than death by starvation under the watchful eyes. War Guards.